2007, October 29th. Today is Lecture 27, Deep Time, the Age of the Earth. The first lecture of four in Unit 5 on the Earth and the Moon. For you today. Okay. I want to begin this question by asking you all a question. Now, I'm going to put this up on the, on the clicker board, but I do not want you to touch your clickers until we've gone through some preliminaries. I could ask this question about the TA, or I could ask this question about any of you in the class, but I figure since it's kind of a personal question, I'll ask it of myself. And before you answer, rather than discussing it among yourselves and before punching in your answer, I'm going to let you ask me three questions to help you along. But I'll warn you, do not ask trick questions to try to trick me into giving you the answer. Try to ask an intelligent question that I have to answer, and I may decline. And the question is this. How old am I? How old am I? And I've given a range of answers, sort of giving you the 40, so I've given you a guess. Now you can ask me any, you can ask me three questions. Don't blow it. Don't try to trick me into answering a question that might help you come to an answer. Sorry? Okay, that's an attempt to trick me into answering it by giving you, like, how many times have you seen the new year come by? Duh. Try to ask me a little bit a different question. Don't try to trick me into giving you an answer that would obviously give it away. Yes, sir? Is it above or below 45? <laughs> no, no, that kind of question is not valid either. So I'm not, okay, that's your last chance. Don't blow it anymore. Yes, sir, and back. When did you start college? When did I start college? Very good question. September of 1979. Of course, you don't know how old I was when I went to college. I could have been one of them junior genius types. Another question. That's, that's one. That was a good one. Oh, come on. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry? Who was the president when I was born? That's a very good question, but I'm not going to answer that one because it probably would give it away too much. But that was, a very, that was an excellent question, but I will sometimes sort of be a little cagey and not answer because I want to just completely give it away. Last call. Yes, sir, in back. What decade was I born in? Mm -mm. You should be able to do that from the math. If it's within the 40s, yeah, it's somewhere in there, right? But that, that's, I'll, okay, I'll give you one more. But not, not attempting to get me to pin it down to dates. Ask me more questions like the first two that I liked. Anybody? Yes, sir. Ma'am. How long have I been teaching in general? Actually, I've been teaching astronomy classes like this since 1977. Good question. Okay, enter your answers. A, A, B, C. You got to use all the buttons on the, on the clicker now. Okay, so enter your answer as to how old do you think I am? And in fact, let me start the timer. You have 30 seconds to give your answer. The clock is ticking. This one counts, by the way. Ten seconds. Two, one, and question is closed. The correct answer is I am 46 years old. Very good, very good. Or maybe very depressing. Um, yes, in fact, I was born in 1961, and the president when I was born was John F. Kennedy. That's why I didn't answer it, because his term was so short that narrowed it too much. Now, 
What was interesting to me is not the answer. I already know the answer. I don't like being reminded sometimes. But what's perhaps more interesting is the kinds of questions you ask. And people have I've asked this in many years I've taught this class. Here are some basic questions I've asked. Who was president when I was born? How old was I when I, when I first entered college? Um, what was the big song at the high school prom, even though I didn't go to the high school prom? Um, yeah, well, you know. Um, oh, various other questions about the history of the time of living in. Look at those types of questions, right? They're we all have a notion about how old someone looks. We have some notion about how people develop. You could tell the difference between a baby, a toddler, a child, an adult. After a while, it kind of gets tough to tell how old someone is. Sometimes people age more gracefully than others and what old people look like. So we have an idea of the physical development of human beings. We also have a notion of the culture in which we live in. Who was president? Who was the first, for example, people in the past have asked me which president election I first voted in. So you have some notion about certain life events that occur at certain ages, like when you go to college, when you first vote. Uh, when you get married, things like that. Some are accurate, some are not. Sometimes we actually carry markers of our age upon us. For example, a number of years ago, one of the people that took this class from me was a campus police officer who was auditing the class because he thought astronomy was cool. And so he stood up in full uniform and asked to see my driver's license. He knew I was carrying a marker with my correct age on it. And it was my correct age. Well, this is asking the question about a person. It's relatively straightforward. We're all people. We have notions of the culture we live in. We have notions of the life stages that people go through, both socially as well as physically. But what if I'd asked the question about how old this building, McPherson Lab, is? Or how old the OSU campus is? Then it's not so obvious how to begin to answer that. So then I have to ask the question, how old is the Earth? And that's today's topic. How old is the Earth? What is the age of the Earth? How do we ask that question and get a meaningful answer out of it? So the key ideas today is we'll start with the answer. The Earth is 4.55 plus or minus 0.05 billion years old. This is measured using a technique called radioactive age dating that we'll say something about towards the end of lecture. Now this question of how old the Earth is and the ways in which people have gone about addressing that question has a very long history. And in many ways, this beginning to Unit 5 is going to represent kind of a transitional lecture. We're going to leave behind a lot of the more historical material. This is kind of my last indulgent gasp to squeeze in some history before we go. We're going to look at the different ages, for example, those that were based on equating the human history with the history of the Earth, and pre-20th century attempts to estimate the physical age of the Earth by looking for physical processes that play out in time that might give an indication of how old physically the Earth was. This is then going to bring us to the beginning of the 20th century and the discovery of the phenomenon of radioactivity and the realization that radioactive isotopes trapped within minerals actually gives us a form of radioactive clock something that allows us to measure the time since that particular piece of rock solidified. And we'll say a bit about how that works and why that qualifier is true. And then, what are the oldest rocks that we can find that allow us to creep up on finally getting to this number of 4.55 plus or minus 0.05 billion years? So dating, the age dating a planet is a non-trivial exercise. And it's one that we've tried to do for many millennia. And today we're going to review just what we mean by the age of the Earth and what it teaches us. Now, in order for the whole question, what is the age of Earth, to even make sense to us, we have to conceive of the possibility that the Earth actually had a beginning. 
turns out if you look through human history, there are two basic ways that people conceive of the flow of time. The first of these is cyclical time, the idea that the Earth has neither a beginning nor an end. Time simply cycles over and over and over again through repeating patterns of varying lengths and, and nastiness at the beginning or end of each cycle. The other idea is what we call linear time, the idea that there is a definite event in the past that we measure and a definite future into which to actually see an end to that phenomenon. And these are two very different ways of dealing with the question. Let's take up these in order. What's cyclic time? On human time scales, this is a very natural way of thinking about time because, in fact, what we've seen in this course, in the study of astronomy, are a lot of cycles of time. We see the cycle of day and night, which repeats over and over and over again for recorded history. The monthly cycle of the moon phases, the yearly cycle of the seasons as they roll around. And even in human scale, we have the generational cycles of life, birth, and death and some people have said, well, you know, if everything else cycles, maybe even life cycles. Maybe death is followed by rebirth. There are whole religious systems which have been predicated on the idea of continuous life, death, and reincarnation back into a continuous cycle of life. Some examples of these cyclic, uh, cyclic forms of viewing time, in fact, not surprisingly, are both religious views as well as cultural views. For example, Hindu, Hinduism and Buddhism both pose it long cycles of cyclical time. The ancient Greeks, especially Plato, quantified what they thought was a cyclic time. Plato here, of course, was trying to make a political and moral point when he talked about a 72,000-year cycle in which there was a 36,000-year golden age followed by a 36,000-year age of disorder and chaos. Of course, Plato was trying to make the moral point that they were living in this age of war, chaos, and, and, and no longer in the golden age of the gods. There's an old story that goes that the Buddha was once asked what the age of the earth was, and the essence of his response, which was in the usual Buddhist sort of uh, cagey kind of elusive way, was to say that, that, there was, that the answer to that question was not conducive to enlightenment. Basically, he stated that the question was itself irrelevant. And within this idea of continual cycles of birth, life, and rebirth, of which one broke out of by achieving nirvana, the beginning or end of the earth made no sense and therefore was not really a point, pointed question. So cyclic time is not going to help us ask the question of the age of the earth because it's kind of beside the point in many ways. It's not conducive to enlightenment. The difference comes when we actually look at systems of time in which people thought of time in a linear fashion as having a definite beginning in the past and a definite ending sometime in the future, either the near future or the far future, depending upon, well, how they felt about it. A good example of this, for example, is Judaism. Right? The three, three of the great world's great religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all have similar roots, and Judaism really set a lot of the stage for this. It posits clearly for the first time in history a very clear linear sequence of time. There was a definite past divine creation of the earth, divine described in the first book of Genesis, and promised an end of time in the sometime future. Now, they didn't say exactly when, and there was, depending upon which traditions, how that end would occur, of course, is a matter of great debate among people. But largely, it posed it a beginning and end. So it became to make sense to ask, well, when was that point of beginning? When was that moment of creation of the earth? Now, Christianity and Islam came out of that tradition. Of course, they went in completely different directions in many ways, but they picked up a lot of ideas that were very similar to that. 
The idea of linear time is that one sees history as kind of a fulfillment, that there is a definite beginning in the past and the whole thing is just playing out to some inevitable preordained end that we may or may not know about. Furthermore, there is no real substantive change in the world except decay from a past state of per perfection. For example, the fall from perfection or the fall from grace, you know, being ejected from the Garden of Eden in the, in the, in the biblical story. This gives you a linear conception of time and it poses that at some time in the past, which you could in principle determine, sets the beginning of the earth. So therein lies a sort of a starting point for this asking of the question, what is the age of the earth? And because European civilization came up through the Christian and Judaic traditions, this therefore became an important intellectual question as we move forward into the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance when people began to gather together a clearer picture of their past, when we see the birth of history, to actually begin to ask, can we actually use the available information to tell us when this beginning actually occurred? There were many people who undertook this effort. It was an effort from all the way back from the pre-Middle Ages, the end of the Roman Empire. Eusebius of Caesarea, one of the people, for example, who was responsible for establishing the date of Easter back in the fourth century AD, also attempted to date the beginning of the world using biblical text. As we move forward into the 16th and 17th centuries, the beginning of history, the beginning of a large amount of contact of the Europeans with the Mediterranean world and the reestablishment of a lot of the historical records led scholars of this time, not only scholars of the Bible, but scholars of a lot of the classical knowledge of the time to begin to reevaluate what was the chronology of human history. And probably the really highest point to which this scholarship was taken was by this man, James Usher, who was the Protestant Archbishop of Armagh. He lived in Armagh of Northern Ireland. He sought to essentially establish a critical chronology of all of human history, including in this the date of the creation. You take the Bible as a historical text and you try to tie it to other historical texts, for example, Roman texts, Babylonian texts, Greek texts, and so forth, which have no relationship to the Bible, which, but which describe similar events. And you tie all those chronologies together, getting rid of the junk and keeping only the best texts from the past. Now, this seems like a very fringe thing to do here in the 21st century, and this is often a practice which has been derided by a lot of people. For example, geology books almost go out of their way to make fun of the Bishop of Usher. But in fact, what Usher and his colleagues were involved in was a very serious intellectual pursuit of the late 16th and early 17th centuries. This was really the birth of critical textual analysis. This was really the birth of critical history, historical analysis. How do you separate real texts from forgeries, from 10th level interpolations? How do you actually find the original text and the original words of documents written in languages that no one has spoken for 2,000 years? That's a tough problem. In the end, what Usher's life's work of, in this area eventually became published in the 16th, year 1658 in a long Latin title that will shorten in English to The Annals of the World. And in there, he describes when was it the world began. And his answer was surprisingly high precision. He said that the world began on Sunday, the 23rd of October, 4004 BC. Oh, by the way, that's in the Julian calendar. This is not an accidental date. This turns out to be the first Sunday after the autumnal equinox in the year 4004 BC on the Julian calendar. Remember that England and the Protestant countries did not adopt the Gregorian calendar reform until the 1700s. Now, a little bit later, whoops, a little bit later, the 
time of the creation, 9 a.m., was added by another fellow by the name of Lightfoot. Now, we might have forgotten this particular date for setting the beginning of everything, tracing everything back through historical records, and even finally at the end, kind of counting up the begets and begats of the first few chapters of the Bible to finally get back to a date of 4004 B.C., except for the fact that Usher's work made its way into the King James Bible, which, was one of, which became the reference English translation of the Old and New Testaments of the Bible for, well, it still is in many ways. And so this idea, this, this date for the creation of the world at about 4004 BC has been carried forward culturally because of how it got lodged in basically the introduction to the King James Bible. But what was really the assumption behind this? What was, the, what was the thing that people were thinking about that's saying by simply looking at the chronology of human history, you age-date the earth? What's central to all of this work, whether it's Usher's or even Johannes Kepler or even Isaac Newton engaged in this exercise? And they all came up with age dates around 4000 BC or so. What they were assuming, the real central assumption, was that you could equate human history with the physical history of the earth. That was the central assumption. Now, one has to ask the question, well, why is it all these difference of approaches came up with 4,000 B.C. in round numbers? Well, the answer turns out, I think, to have to do with the fact that they're using written records. And therefore, they will go back only as far as writing existed in human history. Writing was invented sometime around the 3rd or 4th millennium B.C., so about 3,000 B.C. in round numbers or middle of the 3000s BC. Oral history only goes about another millennium further back before things start getting so crazy, right? You know, history becomes legend, legend becomes myth to rip off a recent popular film. Same thing happens in history, right? Who were Isis and Osiris? Were they gods and goddesses or is it a dimly remembered pair of perhaps brother and sister or husband and wife, king and queen who first brought civilization to Egypt? But they were so far separated from the written records, they eventually became myths by the time they were written down. The simple fact is, if you use all the available human texts of history, you will only go back to about 3,000-odd B.C., because before that, there was no writing. There are no written records. And then you simply fade off into the oral history and the memory, the somewhat limited memory of societies. So it's not surprising to me that all of the dates which are based on human recorded history terminate at around 4000 BC. The question you then begin to ask yourself is, is this central assumption correct? Is human history synonymous with the physical history of the earth? Or perhaps asked a different way, as people began to ask it, if you go out and independently estimate a physical age for the earth, does it give you an answer which is consistent with your historical based age, yes or no? And if the answer is no, what does that mean? Can we come up with ways of aging, dating the Earth that never makes reference to us, to our history, but instead is an independent check on these numbers? Well, among the first people to attempt this comes out of this same milieu of Usher, although from a slightly later generation, and it, of course, is Edmund Halley. We've met him before. He's, of course, an astronomer. He was the man who brought the Principia to the light of day by convincing Newton to, to actually write down his great thoughts. Among Halley's works was he actually made an estimate of one of the first recorded estimates that we know of, of the physical age of the Earth. His reasoning went somewhat as follows. Rivers, as they flow into the ocean, leach salts out of rock and soil. 
those salts flow into the ocean and make the ocean saltier. Over time, the ocean should get saltier and saltier because of the ocean water falling in, and we know whatever the process of evaporation and rainfall, rainfall is fresh water, doesn't contain salts. So the net effect would be to concentrate salts in the ocean water. And he said, well, if you look at the salinity now of the oceans and say, what if the oceans all started out as fresh water? How long would it take for the oceans to achieve their current level of salinity? Furthermore, if, if history was very, very, very deep, the ocean should in principle be as salty as the Dead Sea. So what Halley began to see is after a few thousand years, the ocean, if the Earth was only a few thousand years old, the amount of salts washing into the immense volume of a freshwater ocean would not be enough to explain the current salinity. So very, very young ages were ruled out by this physical mechanism. Contrary-wise, if the age of the Earth was infinite, the sea should be as salty as the Dead Sea. So salty that you would practically float on top because there's so much dissolved salt in it. That's clearly not the case. So the Earth isn't infinitely old. Now, it turns out that Halley never carried this calculation to its logical conclusion and gave us a number. What it looks like he was really trying to do was establish that the Earth was not infinitely old. Later, an Irish geographer by the name of John Jolie, who lived in the 1890s, used Halley's method to estimate how old the Earth might have to be. What is the limiting age of the Earth? If you started with a freshwater ocean and ended up with the current level of salinity, estimating in various ways what is the rate of salts being washed out of rock by all the world's oceans. The answer he got was somewhere between 80 and 90 million years of age. So it takes, if you wanted to start fresh and get salty via this method, the estimates are crude, but it gave you a number of around 100 million years in round numbers. That's a big, long time. That's a lot longer than the 6,000-odd years that was posited by using historical records. Of course, by the 1890s, other methods had come along, which also were giving very large ages for the age of the Earth, physical ages for the age of the Earth. One of the more famous of these comes out of a Frenchman named Georges-Louis Leclerc, who was also the Comte du Buffon. He was a French nobleman, he was a very wealthy man, he was a natural, uh, naturalist and geologist. What he did was he made the following physical question. He said, let's pose it like Newton does, that the Earth started out hot and molten and cooled into its current semi-solid state. We know the interior of the Earth is still hot because we see molten rock coming out of volcanoes. So we know the Earth has not cooled completely through. But if you started out with the Earth being molten, being made of silicates and iron, and you said, how long would it take for it to cool until we see the cool surface of the Earth now? How long would that take? And he didn't just speculate. He did a series of experiments in which he took iron spheres, heated them up on a forge on his estate, and saw how long it took them, just brought just to the melting point, to cool down where they were cool enough to touch. His own hands were so torn up from his work in the forge that he actually enjoyed using... He preferred to have young women come to his estate and their hands were so delicate they could much better tell when things were more easily cool to the touch. There's always that little bit of Frenchman in everyone, I guess, and Leclerc seemed to have it in spades. But the bottom line is this. He took the, scale, took the iron spheres, computed how long an iron sphere, say, the size of a bowling ball would take to cool, and then worked out the physics to scale that up to an iron sphere the size of the Earth and asked how long would you need for the Earth to cool to its current temperature? And the answer he came up with is around 75,000 years. 
And this is what convinced Leclerc that this great antiquity for the Earth was more consistent with the things that he was seeing in the Earth's geology that were convincing him that there were processes on the Earth that needed very long times to play out. And here was showing that here was another piece of evidence to show that the Earth must be very, very old. In fact, later estimates using the same technique by Lord Kelvin, the same Kelvin who gives us the Kelvin temperature scale made in the late 19th century, revised this estimate upwards to about between 20 and 40 million years to go from a molten state to the current temperature. His estimates more correctly took into account the fact that the Earth is still molten in the interior, how fast the heat should actually transport out to the surface, and the fact that it's made of silicates and iron, not just pure iron, that Buffon did. But the same basic idea applies. You identify a physical process that you think occurred. You know how that physical process plays out in time, you have some estimate of what the starting point of that physical process is, how long does it take to get to our current time. That's the basic principle behind it. By this time, by the time of Buffon, every single physical estimate that people came up with for the age of the Earth was simply in conflict with these historically based ages. In fact, the Comte de Buffon actually got into a great deal of trouble with the French Catholic Church because he posited it in an Earth which was much older than even the 4004 BC posited by the English cleric Usher. The next step in this process of understanding the antiquity of the Earth comes from James Hutton, one of the founders of modern geography. He lived in, this, in the 18th century, and in the year 1795 published a book called The Theory of the Earth, which was the first real modern geology textbook. It was Hutton who began to describe the processes of geologic destruction and repair on the Earth. He noticed that there were repeated cycles of uplift, of material that looked like seafloor ending up on the tops of mountains. If you go to the tops of the Alps, you find minerals that are normally found in the seabed. So how did seabed get up to the height of the Alps? The idea was that there must be some process of uplift that built those mountains, buckled the crust upwards into the mountains. Similarly, there was a constant process of erosion that was wearing down these mountains and flowing them into the ocean. So the idea that the geology of the land was dynamic. Now what he saw in particular was he introduced a new idea into geology, and that's the idea of repair of terrain. Normally you think of terrains being destroyed, the idea of everything starting out fresh and new and then kind of getting old and weathered and nasty. But what Hutton said, look, volcanism is the building of new rock out of old molten rock from the interior. There is new stuff being repaired. The terrains are being rebuilt constantly. And in fact, you can see this in the, in the land itself, even in England. Now, the old idea before Hutton was really the idea of an instant of creation of the earth, and then everything kind of was just kind of aging and getting kind of worn out as time went on. And what Hutton showed was a physical process that actually could repair the earth. He concluded from his studies that the earth had to be at least millions of years old because of the time it takes for these processes to play out. But interestingly, even though he established an earth of great antiquity in his studies, he was to also almost shut the door on the idea that you could even estimate then the age of the earth. All he would say is that these processes of repair essentially erase the previous cycles. They reset the clock, if you will, so you can't actually read when the clock started in the distant past. So even though he opened the door to the great antiquity of the earth, he practically shut the door on the question that you could follow that process backwards to the beginning. 
Here's, what, here's part of Hutton's data. This is what's called a Hutton deconformity. This is his sketch from his book. You have sort of a flat layer of sediments and then a vertical layer of rock sitting below it that actually shows a very different kind of terrain below. This sketch is actually made on this very place here. It's a modern road cut showing the vertical strata here and then the horizontal strata above it as if there were different layers of destruction, uplift, and rebuilding. This is another example of a Hutton deconformity. Sediments are normally laid down horizontally, just one layer on another like layers in a cake. But some process has lifted up and buckled the crust, so instead of the layers lying flat like they do in the back part of this picture, some of these layers are poking straight up, as if someone literally took those slabs and some process turned them, poof, up on their side. These were physical evidence of taking sediments and disrupting and pushing them upward, of, of destruction and eventually rebuilding on top of that destruction. Rather than a single episode of destruction in the past, and all you see is just the debris sitting on top. Continuous cycles of destruction and rebuilding. The next step comes from Charles Lyell, who wrote The Principles of Geology, which was the ultimate geology textbook. It went through 11 editions between 1830 and 1872. It was Lyell who introduced the idea of stratigraphic aging, the idea that these different strata of different types of rock layered one upon another actually separate out previous periods of geologic history, a period when where you were was seafloor, a period when where you were was a volcanic plain, and so forth. He also was to show that you could use the fossils that are embedded in those strata to compare strata in one place of the earth with strata in another place of the earth. You found a particular type of extinct mouse in a particular layer with certain minerals, and you find another such layer in a different place with the same approximate species of, decay, of, of extinct mouse, and you could actually relatively date, oh yeah, this terrain is from the same period of geologic history as this terrain and by looking at those comparisons begin to piece together geologic history. The point was is that old rocks were kind of like young rocks but because life showed tremendous variation over the history of the earth that you could use the presence of life as a way of setting the clock geologically. And again, Lyell like Hutton when he looked at the time required for these processes to play out realized these processes require tremendous deep time, millions of years. And really it was Hutton and Lyell who introduced this idea of deep time. That the age of the earth, that the history of the earth physically was far deeper than human history suggested it might be. But all of these methods were very imperfect. They relied on a lot of secondary information. They relied on a lot of things that didn't have a good clock. It's, it's kind of like, in some sense, guessing my age, but imagine that I wasn't going gray and I, I dye my hair a bit and I get a little Botox to make the wrinkles go away. I could, in fact, look cosmetically younger. Or I could just be one of those people who just doesn't look their age. Turns out a couple years ago, when I first started teaching here at Ohio State, my first day coming up to class, the students all went up to the TA. The, student, the TA actually looked older than I did. Now, that changed pretty quick, but... You can see where these secondary evidences, well, we kind of know how things go, are imprecise. We wanted something more precise, like a birth certificate, or a driver's license, or a ticking clock that starts at birth. Turns out nature very nicely provides us with such a thing, radioactivity. Remember that radioactive isotopes is a random decay process, and the time associated with that activity is called the half-life. 
If I have a block of a particular radioactive element with a 50-year half-life, and I lock that element away for 50 years, in 50 years, half of that element will be replaced by its daughter products. Another 50 years, half of a half or a quarter will be remaining of that material, and three quarters will be daughter product, and so on and so forth exponentially. So if I know how much parent isotope I start with, and I measure the proportions of parent to daughter products over time, and I know the half-life, I know when that jar, if you will, was sealed. Your homework problem, for example, for tomorrow, has you thinking about this. You seal up a jar, what's the half-life involved? Turn it around. Let's say I told you what the half-life of eludium was, and you, unobtainium was, and you opened up the jar after a certain amount of time and found the proportions of parent and daughter, you could tell me when I sealed the jar by knowing the radioactive decay half-life. Turns out that zircon crystals, of which an example is shown in the upper right-hand corner, is one such particularly interesting mineral. Zircon chemically when it's formed, it's basically zirconium, silicon, and oxygen. It's a big crystal. But chemically, during its formation, it can actually chemically take up some materials that, have some that it has some affinity with. Turns out zirconium and uranium have a chemical affinity. As such, zircon crystals, zircons, often have containing within them uranium. The two most abundant naturally occurring isotopes of uranium are uranium-238 and uranium-239. Mostly 99 point some odd percent of uranium is uranium-238, about 0.7% is uranium-235, and then so on in smaller quantities for the other isotopes. Uranium-238 and 235 are both radioactively unstable. Uranium-238 decays to form eventually a daughter product called lead-206, PB is lead, isotope 206, with a half-life of about 4.5 billion years, 4.47 billion years exactly. Uranium-235 decays into lead-207 with a 704 million year half-life. Both of these isotopes of, of lead that form aren't stable. They no longer, they do not further decay. Once you have uranium turned into lead, the lead stays lead. So why do we care in the case of zircons? Well, it turns out that while zircons can take up uranium chemically, they strongly reject the take up of lead. In fact, pure zircons made fresh in the laboratory or made fresh geologically are 100% lead free. So if you find a zircon, they start out with zero lead if they just formed yesterday. But the uranium inside them is slowly converting itself from uranium to lead. And that uranium is trapped in the crystalline lattice of the zircon, which means the daughter products will be trapped in the lattice. So, over time, you end up with less and less uranium and even less 238 and even less uranium 235, the fast decaying isotope, because it converts itself into lead. But over that same time, that lead stays trapped in the crystal like the uranium, and so you begin to build up lead inside a zircon. Lead where it chemically cannot be at formation, but it's trapped after solidification. So if you also, because these 238 and 235 uranium have different decay rates, you build up differing ratios of lead 206 and lead 207 isotopes compared to, say, normally surrounding stuff. So what you see is not only changes in the proportions of lead and uranium, but changes in the relative proportions of the two isotopes because of the different rates of decay of the two uranium isotopes. That gives you a cross-check on how long it has been since that rock decayed, that rock formed. 
So locking up uranium inside of a zircon is like locking an obtainium in the jar in your homework problem. And then coming by later and looking at how much unobtainium is left and how much daughter illudium is left tells me when I sealed the jar. Crystallizing a zircon is sealing the jar. The uranium it starts with will decay into lead. There will be lead where no lead should be. I count up the amount of lead and its proportions, and I can read off the age of the rock. Not only do I get one measurement, I actually get two for free because of the different isotopic ratios. So here's what happens in graphical form. I start out with the zircon with, say, a, let's just track uranium-235. I have 100 atoms of uranium-235 in my zircon fragment and zero of lead at the start. As lead uranium decays, lead takes its place. So after five half-lives of uranium-235, I only end up with, of the initial 100 uranium atoms, only three are left in the crystal. But where there was zero lead to start with, now there are 97 atoms of not just any lead, but lead 207. And an analogous curve could be drawn for uranium-238, leaving behind daughter uranium lead-206. So schematically, I lock up in a zircon. I'll just start with equal amounts of uranium-238 and uranium-235 and no lead. I built a zircon four and a half billion years ago. Now I come forward four and a half billion years later, one uranium-238 half-life later, Half the uranium-238 has turned into 206 lead, one half-life later. But uranium-235 has a 700 million year rather than 4.5 billion year half-life. That works out to about 6.4 half-lives will occur during 4.5 billion years. And so my uranium-235 will only have 1.2% left, and the other will be a gigantic pile, that other 98.8% has converted itself into lead 207. So I start out with nothing, and later on I end up with a huge amount of lead 207 and a little bit of lead 206. Combining these proportions tells me, oh, that zircon was made four and a half billion years ago. And this is called radiometric dating. Radiometric dating is using radioactive isotopes locked inside of crystalline minerals to age date the rocks that contain those minerals. There's lots of these ratios we use. You don't need to worry about memorizing these. The basic idea is it's not just uranium. We can also use rubidium and strontium as a clock. It comes with about a 50 billion year half-life. We can use potassium to argon, which has a 1.3 billion year half-life. This one's kind of cool. Potassium-40 is a common potassium salt content. Argon is a gas. So if you find argon gas trapped in a crystal, it shouldn't be trapped there. It came from potassium-40 decay, and the amount of argon-40 trapped in the crystal tells you the age of the crystal. And there's different minerals that these things are found in. But for example, zircons for uranium, there are various types of silicate-bearing felspars. Various mineral crystals contain these so-called radioactive inclusions. So what you measure is not just the decay products. You measure proportions of isotopes. You measure certain chemical differences that occur among these things. You don't just use one number. You use multiple. In fact, there's almost a dozen different cross-checks. And you age date a particular rock. And you can actually date when that rock was made. But what you're dating is when the rock was made. The question we're trying to ask is, when was the Earth made? Well, here's how we do it. Once you make a mineral, the allowed minerals get locked in, the disallowed minerals are locked out, and then the daughter products of any allowed enclosed 
radioactive elements stay trapped inside that crystal. Now that's just fine, except that the Earth is an active place. So if you turned around and melted that crystal, decrystallized it, and then reformed it, when you turn it into a liquid, when you moltenize it, you reject all those daughter products you've spent three billion years building up, and when you recrystallize, you've reset the clock. You've kicked out all the lead from the zircon, for example, and when you recrystallize, you lock up uranium, but no lead. So you've reset the atomic clock. So what this radioactive da radiometric dating does is it measures the time since that particular rock was last solidified. So now comes the trick. The trick is not to just pick up any old rock in the ground. You have to find the oldest and oldest and oldest rocks. As you keep digging further and further into the geologic past, eventually you find that there are no older rocks. And once you find that no more older rocks, you have now begun to see that you've gotten past the data formation of the Earth or the Moon or the thing that you're measuring the data of. So the game is you have to find the oldest rocks. This is tricky because the Earth is old. The Earth is geologically active. Lots of the surface rocks have been melted and reformed many times. In fact, most of the Earth's crust is less than 100 million years old. So the solution is you find the oldest rocks on Earth. And there's a number of places I've listed up here. Going back to about 4.4 billion year old zircons from the Jack Hills of Australia, the Canadian and Greenland areas have four and three billion year old rocks. But then going back even further to moon rocks and meteors, the raw materials out of which the Earth formed are the meteors. The oldest known zircons are 4.4 billion years old. The oldest moon rocks and meteors are, have ages back to about 4.5 billion years with a spread of about 100 million years, which is telling us that the formation of the Earth was not instantaneous but played out over about 100 million years. So when you put all the numbers together, the best estimate for the age of the Earth is 4.55 plus or minus 0.05 billion years. It's not a single number. It's not a single rock. It's not a single line of evidence. It's a very large preponderance of evidence. Radioactivity is a clock, and we've learned laboriously to read that clock and read where is the Earth in the history of deep time. And the answer is this number here, about 4.5, 4.6 billion years old, sets the birth of the solar system. See you all tomorrow.